Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Luke. We're going to also look at some passages in Romans and the Psalms this morning, but Luke 17 is going to be our main text for study. And I want to look this morning at a short encounter that Jesus has with ten lepers. You're probably familiar with the account, but it's really easy for us to neglect the spiritual principle that comes out of this text that the Spirit wants to teach us here. I've been very impressed over the past week at how good the Lord is and how faithful the Lord is and how amazing His grace and His mercy is, both in changing lives from hopelessness to hope, but also in terms of how He leads us. When the poor Lord pours out His mercy and His blessing, it's unmistakable, isn't it? We know it when it happens. And we've heard the evidence, and some of you weren't able to be there, but we heard the evidence of that in those testimonies Thursday night at the lake at Village Creek. And I think every single uh, person that was on that beach, including many of the kids, were just overwhelmed by what God has done. But as I started to reflect on that, as I was standing there in the water listening to those testimonies, and as we've had time to come back and and reflect on it, I I started to ask myself, how often does that gratitude really pour out of our mouths? How much time do we spend of the 168 hours that we'll get this week really thanking the Lord for all He's done? I'm not just talking about here in the 30 or 35 minutes where we worship and praise Him, and wonderful this morning to hear everybody singing and praising the Lord, But, but how often in those other hours that we have do we really thank God for what he's done. Now Jesus essentially asks that question here in Luke chapter 17. And let's look at the context for the one verse that we'll kind of focus on. But start in verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. One of them, verse 15, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Now leprosy was more common in the first century than it is now. There are only about 100 reported cases a year in the United States. And leprosy has two different forms, neither of which I can pronounce, but both produce open sores on the skin. And the more severe uh, form of leprosy causes large kind of lumps that disfigure and not to be too graphic this morning because it's between breakfast and lunch but there are scabs that are usually prominent and the hair around the affected area usually turns white now modern day leprosy is not as catastrophic but in the uh, old form of leprosy where there wasn't enough medical care um, it would eventually cause nerve damage in the arms and legs and people really with long-term leprosy, uh, might lose the use of their hands and feet. So it's a very awful disease. Now, modern-day medicine helps us because it's much more effective in treating the disease 
and um, you don't have uh, what they had back then, which was isolation and what were called leper colonies, where all the lepers would just be together and kind of continue to make each other sick, and they would be separated uh, from everybody else. But back then, leprosy was not only uh, incredibly painful and incredibly contagious, but it also uh, caused the person to be treated as spiritually unclean. In fact, when a leper uh, was seen to be a leper and that was affirmed by the priests, then they would have to be separated from the rest of the culture. And whenever anyone would draw near to them or they would draw near to anybody, they would have to shout out, unclean! So, so everybody would have time to run away. Now you can only imagine how emotionally damaging that was. Not to mention the physical effects of this disease and the awful, uh, nasty, painful, uh, just depressing uh, symptoms that came out of the disease. But then to be separated from everybody and to have to declare, I'm different, I'm not allowed to come near you, just took a, an incredible emotional, physical, mental, social, and religious toll. So these men that are here are, are dealing with that. And to compound all of that, because people in New Testament times equated uh, disease with sin, leprosy was considered to be the epitome of sin. In other words, you did something really, really wrong if you got leprosy. Now, we see in this passage that Jesus is going toward Jerusalem. This is the latter half of his life. He's eventually moving to the place where he's going to be crucified, and he's passing from Galilee on the north uh, down into Samaria. And somewhere on the border of those two regions, Galilee and Samaria, he comes into this town, and he finds that there are ten lepers there outside of the village. Now, interestingly, if we look at the text, the group is a mix of Jewish and Samaritan lepers. Now, that's an odd arrangement in light of the fact that those two cultures, those two races, deeply hated each other. So to see Jews and Samaritans intermingling, even though they're lepers, it doesn't really matter. That, that's something that the Holy Spirit wants us to make note of. Not only so we'll recognize the uniqueness of the situation, but so we recognize that Jesus does not distinguish between the races. Jesus does not choose to help only some. The Lord is not partial only to those that he wants to help. He is partial toward everybody. God loves everybody. Christ died for everybody. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Some will because they reject him. But he doesn't desire that. So when somebody cries out to him in faith, he is more than willing to help. Now, if you look at the text, you see in verse, um, sorry, I can't read this morning, context not working, in verse 12, that these men all apparently call out to him at the same time. Maybe they planned it that way because one of the symptoms of leprosy was it causes your voice to become very hoarse. So they must have seen him coming and must have said, hey, there's some hope because we know this guy heals. So all together on three... Let's, let's cry out to him, and maybe he'll hear us, and maybe he'll help us. This took great effort. But they know Jesus' reputation, and they know that he had the power to heal. At this point, they may not have a, a, a true understanding of who he is, 
but somehow they have hope that maybe he will show mercy on them. And they cry out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Master, help us. And Jesus apparently moves closer to them because he goes from seeing them, uh, excuse me, from hearing them to seeing them. We see that in verse 14. And he says, go see the priest. Now in Israel, to be declared clean within the community, a leper had to show evidence to a priest that he was clean, that he was healed from the disease. And the certification of that by the priest took a cleansing ceremony and a sacrificial ceremony a week later. It was a very rare occurrence. And as we know from 2 Kings, when Naaman was cured of leprosy, the priest considered it to be a miraculous event. They, they saw when somebody was healed from leprosy that God had intervened and helped. So Jesus says, go to a priest. And what he's doing at that point, because they're not yet healed, is he's testing their trust. He gives no promise as he says this. If you go to the priest, you'll be healed. As you go on your way to the priest, by the time you get there, the leprosy will be gone. We have no indication from the text as Luke records it. And Luke was a medical doctor, so he knew. We have no indication that Jesus gave them any promise of healing. So to go to a priest, if they weren't really clean, was going to be an incredible risk. Notice, too, in the text what you don't see. You don't see in verse 14 that Jesus speaks with, with tremendous concern or that he shows open sympathy. We know he did. And we know there are other passages, like when he gets off the boat in, in Matthew chapter 9, where it says Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion like they were sheep without a shepherd. We know there are times where Jesus' compassion was obvious and open. But I want you to see here in this text that it's not in this text. Now what does that teach us? Why? Why would we make a note of that? Well, it's important to understand that there are times in our lives, hear me carefully now, there are times in our lives where the Lord veils His compassion. Where His compassion and His mercy and His empathy isn't always right there in our face. Now you'd say, well, that doesn't seem very loving. Why would He hide His compassion? He hides it because we know He knows we will always be drawn to what helps us. But we won't always appreciate what helps us. So sometimes the Lord veils his compassion because he wants to see our confidence and trust solely based on who he is, not just what he's going to do for us. We know that's true, right? We know there are times where we think that God's just this magic genie, that we pray, Lord, give it to me. Lord, I need this. Come on, Lord, help me. And we pray sometimes this way, like, like with this sense of expectation and, and entitlement, like, well, he said, if I call on him, he'll answer me, so come on. So sometimes God says, no, I'm not going to do that right now. I want you to show that you're confident in me. I want you to show that you trust me, whether you get anything or not. See, this is the difference between hesitant faith and mature faith. And according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and James chapter 1, verse 5, we see the difference. Hesitant faith doubts. 
and it wavers and it wonders and it looks for a sign to confirm its insecurity. Hesitant faith says, well, I hope God's going to do that. And I pulled out a couple promises out of Scripture that, that I think apply here. And, and, and I'm going to pray. I'm not real sure. I don't really have full faith, but, but I'm trying. Hesitant faith says, I'm trying. Mature faith says, I see what's invisible. I see the potential of what God will do based on his character and his word and his promises. I'm not making that up. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that exact thing. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. In other words, it understands the character and the mercy and the grace of God. And it says, Lord, you will do this. And I trust you based on who you are. And Lord, by your will, you are going to work and it is going to be for my benefit. Whether I enjoy it or not, it is going to be what's best. How many know that we need to have mature faith this morning? Not just, oh, please, I hope somehow, Lord, that you come through, and if not, I've got to develop a contingency plan. That's not faith. Listen, we're going to face the same test as the church as we face personally. There are going to be times where we need to keep walking forward steadfastly in faith, even while we're still carrying the problem. The lepers aren't healed immediately. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? As soon as she touches the hem of his garment, boom, she's healed. Remember when Jesus says, he meets the man and he says, you don't have to come to my house, just say the word and he'll be healed. And and immediately the child was healed. Well, that's not the case here. The leopards say, Lord, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus says, go to the priest. And as they're going, it doesn't happen right away. They still have to carry the burden for a while. They have to take the Lord at his word and start walking. Much of life is like that. And the Lord asks for our reliance based on the implied promise. Go and it will happen. But first, you've got to take that step of faith. Peter, you've got to step out of the boat. Everybody else is scared. They're sitting in the boat. Peter, you get out. But keep your eyes on me. And that's what happens. Look at the text. All ten of them go. Now, the Jewish and the Samaritan religious leaders taught that it was wrong to have even contact with each other. And to enter into each other's territories or even speak to one another was kind of unthinkable. So for Samaritan lepers to appeal to Jesus, who as a man was a Jew. And for Samaritan lepers to go to a Jewish priest would be unthinkable and even offensive. But they go. Look at the text. And as they go, complete healing comes into their bodies. What a strange sensation that must have been. What an odd realization that they were healed. They probably stopped and kind of looked at each other like, hey, wait, let me see you. They start looking at each other's skin, start looking at each other's hair, and start to look where the scabs used to be, and the scabs are gone. Try to imagine the feeling of that, because it's important in the message of the text, that that the evidence of impurity was gone. This is not like getting over a cold where, oh, I stopped sneezing. This was the most awful 
incurable, contagious disease that existed, and it completely exiled the person from any degree of normalcy. It was miserable and painful, but now they were healed. What was that moment like? How much joy flooded their souls when they knew it was true? They weren't just ceremonially clean, they were permanently clean. And at that point, listen now, they had gotten everything they wanted. Jesus had fulfilled their request. But for nine of them, from this point on, they have no more thoughts of Jesus. They turn their back on him and walk away. Thankless and ungrateful and unwilling to acknowledge the one who had changed their lives. But look, verse 15, one of them, only one of them, turned back as soon as he saw he was healed and he began to glorify God with a loud voice. It would have been a huge contrast to what had been true an hour before when his voice was kind of hoarse and he could yell and they had to all yell together. And now he comes back, praise the Lord. Oh, God is so great. He's so wonderful. Praise the Lord. I mean, it's, it's that loud and that open. Nothing's going to stop him from praising God. And then he comes and he falls on his face before Jesus, the most undeniable posture of worship. And he begins to praise the Lord for what he's done and give thanks to Jesus. And then Luke adds a little important detail, just five words. He says, and he was a Samaritan. Now that delineation causes two implications. One is that it was another pointed statement about the faithlessness of the Jews who had rebelled against the Lord for centuries despite all that God had done to help them and their constant rejection of him was an indication of their thanklessness and their selfishness. The fact that the one who came back was a Samaritan was a statement about the Jews. And second, would you see, that this is a reminder that praise of the Lord causes, crosses all nationalities and backgrounds. In the same way the Jews and Samaritan lepers were together by the disease, the body of Christ is brought together by the spiritual cleansing that only Jesus Christ can provide. He brings together a mix of all races, nationalities, backgrounds, and experiences, male and female, Jew and Gentile, all in one family. We talk so much at family camp about the community and the family that we feel that God has blessed us with here at this church. And it is my fervent hope that we will continue as a people to reach people for Christ and to minister to our community, and that as we grow, we will be open and accessible to everybody. May we never hinder anybody because of who they are. All races and nationalities, we come together as a house of prayer and a place of worship and a place of spiritual education and maturation. That's what the body of Christ is called to, not to be segregated, but to be together. Now, our example comes from this Samaritan. 
Notice how unencumbered he is by human limitation. He doesn't think twice about approaching a Jew and falling at his feet. Because how many of us know that when we're in the presence of the Lord praising him, we don't care what anybody else thinks. Somebody say amen because it'll prove my point. When you're in the presence of God, you are not thinking about what somebody else thinks about you. If you love the Lord this morning, don't get caught up in musical style or what you know and like, and certainly don't be distracted by the person next to you, and don't be concerned about what they think if you sing and pray. Never, ever, ever let somebody's opinion hinder you from praising the Lord. That is pride, and we're going to look at it in a few minutes. Pride always stifles worship. It hinders us from thanking the Lord. And one of the worst responses we can have to the Lord is thanklessness. Turn for a minute over to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read three of the saddest and most sobering verses in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1. Thanklessness. What does the Lord say about it? Romans chapter 1, look at verse 21. He's speaking about how the world turns against God and ignores the evidence of creation. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Let's define two key words in this text. When the Spirit says they knew, that they knew God through the creation and through inner conviction, the word there literally means they were fully aware of His power and His presence. In other words, every single person that lives is accountable and aware, not only that there's a higher power, now listen, because what I'm about to say People will flat out deny, but they're denying what Scripture says. Every single person that lives not only knows that there's a higher power, but also, according to the text, that there is a personal God who is involved with creation. Now, you will never hear somebody that denies God say that they believe that. Well, there might be a God. I don't know. I think science proves everything. Science proves nothing. The human body alone is unfathomable, how it works together, how it all fits, how it makes sense, how you can't have one part without the other. As we rode horses through the trees in the, at, at camp, I looked at these ferns that were growing, and I thought, God knows every single leaf on those ferns. He knows every leaf on the trees. He knows exactly how many blades of grass are out there in the field. God is unfathomable. And this text says, no one is unaccountable. Everybody knows there is a God and God is personal. And to take it even further, no one has an excuse. Knowledge creates accountability. And because of that, there are only three possible responses. Number one, indifference and rejection. Number two, rebellion and, direct, and rejection. Number three, faith and praise. Now look at the second statement. 
even though they knew God, even though everybody knows there is a God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. I like actually the King James better here. It says, neither were they thankful. The word there in the Greek is the word eucharizo. It's the word that we get Eucharist from. It means to be grateful and feel thankful and give thanks. So even though people understand about the Lord, they are unwilling to be grateful to him or thank him by drawing close to him. They just take him for granted and ignore his authority and disregard him. Now, when we see verses 21 and 22, there are definite implications about this. According to these verses, when we are not thankful, it does five things. Number one, it makes us futile in our imagination. Literally, it means that we're proud in our thoughts, especially about God. Pride corrupts everything it touches, and it hinders worship because it causes us to think about how we're feeling. Quickly, we start to say, well, I'm not really comfortable with that, and it's not what I want, and I'm concerned about how people feel about me, rather than just saying, I'm going to please the Lord with my praise, even if my voice cracks and squeaks, and even though I don't know how to pray like some other people I've been around, doesn't matter, because I'm going to praise my God. So you can think what you want, you can look down on me, I don't care. Second, when we aren't thankful, we develop foolish hearts. Literally in the Greek, it means we're stupid in the inner man. We're just stupid. Pride does that. It makes us spiritually senseless. And then he says, third, it leads to our hearts being darkened. Our moral clarity is diminished and our spiritual insights reduced. But we're not even bothered by it because of the fourth thing. We profess ourselves to be wise. Never mind that we're clueless. Never mind that we're blindly leading ourselves to destruction. Mankind's never been worried about the obvious facts. And that's the irony of thanklessness and pride. It leads us to believe that we're brilliant. And maybe that we even caused all this to happen because we can figure it out. But the truth is, according to the Lord, we're actually fools. And then there's a fifth result, and this isn't in the text, but it's very obvious. The fifth result of thanklessness is that we get very spoiled. We feel like we're entitled to what we want. We believe the world evolves around us, and really there should be no limitations. See, the reason the Lord wants us to be thankful is not only because he absolutely deserves it, but he knows that being grateful makes us left self-centered. Isn't it incredible how easy it is it is for us to receive from the Lord and to quickly walk away without even thanking Him. He gives to us, He gives to us, He gives to us, and we become kind of dulled. And ironically, this happens the older we are in the Lord sometimes. When somebody's first saved, it's like, oh, look at the Lord did. I saw Him here. Isn't it crazy? God's working in so many ways. Aren't you excited? Aren't you excited? Like, yeah, yeah. I've done this for a long time. 37 years under my belt as a Christian. Well, aren't you excited? Yeah. I am excited. I praise the Lord 
for what he's done. Any more of that, don't we? I'm not talking crazy, but I'm talking passion. Not, oh, yes, I love the Lord. But I love, don't you love the Lord this morning? Don't you love Him? Isn't He good? Praise Him. Let's praise Him. Oh, may we not become people that are so dull that we become thankless. Turn over to Psalm 103 just for a minute. Let's try to draw this to a close. We need a little bit more perspective. I'm not sure we all quite get it yet. Now, we could read this whole text, and we could study it for hours and hours and hours, but let's just read verses 1 to 2. Psalm 103, verses 1 to 2. Thanks for turning. The goal every time we turn in Scripture in this church is it sounds like it's raining, okay? Amen? Right? It's like, oh, it's raining outside. Psalm 103, 1 to 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. To bless literally means to kneel before Him and to praise Him openly. Just like the leper did. When the leper came back and he was healed, he fell on his face and he praised God with a loud voice. That's Psalm 103.1. Bless the Lord, praise the Lord, honor the Lord openly, not quietly now. Openly with joy and confidence and gratitude to Him. Notice that the praise comes from all that's within us. Nothing held back, not just a little bit of thankfulness, a little bit of gratitude. Everything in us should just get stirred up and we should say, oh, praise the Lord for what He's done. And the impetus for that praise, verse 2, is that we don't forget any of His benefits. Now we might be inclined to say, well, Paul, come on, you're picking on me this morning. Sometimes I just forget to thank the Lord for all He's done. The problem is that the word forget in the Hebrew means to ignore and cease to care. Oh, that hurts. Forget not all His benefits. Hey, believer, don't ignore Him and stop caring about all the things He does every single day. You say, well, that's not my conscience intent. Doesn't matter. That's the reality behind being ungrateful. We get so used to the grace of God because it's so wide, isn't it? And we get so used to it that we just start to take it for granted. Oh, may that never be. Don't forget, Christian. Don't ignore it. Don't cease to care. Don't forget His benefits. One of the reasons that we're thankless is we like focusing on the negative more than the positive. I read one writer this week who said, some of us can see no blue in our sky if there's one small cloud there. We choose to do that for two reasons. Because it draws attention to us and people might feel sorry for us or because it's easier to complain than to humble ourselves and submit ourselves and say, Lord, thank you. Even though I don't understand it, even though it's not fun right now, even though this is a trial, Lord, you are sufficient. 
and you have never failed me, and you never forsaken me, and you saved me and redeemed me from the miry clay, and I'm not going to concentrate on myself and how I feel. I am going to have the attitude of Christ, who in Hebrews it says, for the joy who was set before him endured the cross. As believers, we need to discover the joy, and we talked about this at camp, the joy of humbling ourselves to the will of God. That is a hard thing to do. It's a mature thing to do, but it's what we're called to do, to be so grateful that He has bought us through Christ and that He's willing to fill us with His Spirit and to lead us faithfully every single day. At the very least, every day, there should be an extended outpouring of humble gratitude. God, thank You for saving me. Oh, where would I be today without You? Thank You. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving me and buying me and redeeming me and purchasing my soul forever. Oh, and if that wasn't enough, all the thousands and ten thousands and hundreds of thousands of things that you do to bless me. Think of the obvious and subtle ways that God's working in your life today. Yesterday afternoon, I stopped by to see Scott Peterson. And he told me how last Saturday he was sitting on his porch and then he thought he was dying. In the span of an hour, he went from perfectly fine to being in intense pain, not being able to walk. He had had diverticulitis and it had exploded and burst into his body. And he said to Donna, I've got to get to the ER, which for Scott is not typical. And he got to the ER, and he saw that they were rushing around and moving around, and he hoped that it was somebody else that was in urgent need, but it wasn't. It was him. They immediately got him into surgery, and the doctor said, in three days you would have been dead. Now Scott travels a ton. He's gone more often than not. And he said, Paul, if I had been away somewhere, you would be planning my funeral right now because I would not have gone to the ER. And he said, when I came out of surgery, Don and I were sitting there and I just started to thank the Lord for all the things I was grateful for, it just started to pour out of me and I started to just look around and say, I'm so grateful for this and so grateful for this and so grateful for this. We saw the same thing at family camp. So much evidence of God's hand, the amazing testimonies of transformation, the healing of marriages, the complete change of perspective that only comes from Christ. And what makes that so compelling is how grateful each person was for what the Lord's done in their life. Look back at Psalm 103. David lists at least 21 evidences here, 21 instances of God's benefits. You can just start to go down the list. I won't do it because of time. Verse 3 has got 2. Verse 4 has got 2. Verse 5 has got 2. Verse 6 has got 2. You just go down the list. He just lists all the benefits of knowing the Lord. All the things that God has done for Scott said, I got to 40 without even trying. 
Forget not all his benefits. Now turn over a couple pages and let's conclude. Psalm 126. We'll look at this and pray. Psalm 126, verses 1 to 3. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Look at how some people praise the Lord. Laughter and shouting and declaring all he's done. These were people that didn't even know Christ yet. These were people that had been disciplined by the Lord for the years of rejecting the warnings of the prophets and had been taken into captivity. And yet as they come back in, they're laughing. Oh, the Lord's so good. And people are saying, look at what the Lord's done for them. How much greater should our praise be? Worship should not be, here's my bias, it should not be somber and depressing. It should not be self-focused unless it's focused on self to declare the greatness of God. No one should have to shake us or stir us to praise God. But what we see back in Luke 17 is all too typical of how people respond to God's goodness. Ten go away. Only one comes back. And Jesus seems almost surprised. There's no doubt there's sadness as he says, wait a second, didn't I heal ten? Where are the other nine? The only one that came back to glorify me was a Samaritan. Somebody that technically hates my guts. Somebody that technically has nothing to do with me. What a tragedy. There was an amazing change of ten lives. How could there be so little gratitude? As the one is on his face praising the Lord, the other nine coldly walk away, forgetting his benefits, neglecting to be thankful, already self-absorbed that they got what they wanted. No wonder the Lord doesn't answer our prayers when they are self-serving and not honoring to Him. No wonder. He's not going to feed the mentality of ingratitude. He will only bless those who bless Him. He says to the leper, Go. Your faith has made you whole. I've always wondered whether that meant that the healing of the other nine didn't last. But there's no evidence in the text. But then I got down and looked at the word, and the word that Jesus uses here indicates there's something far greater than the physical healing because he distinguishes his man by his faith. The others didn't show faith. They just showed obedience. But we know from the Old Testament in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that obedience doesn't save. Faith saves. Because if obedience saves, we'll brag about it. So while all ten were physically healed of leprosy, only one was healed spiritually. Let me finish with this. The word says, your faith has made you whole. It's the Greek word sozo. It means wholeness for the spirit, soul, and body. 
It's the physical and spiritual healing that Jesus is about to purchase on the cross. So while ten are healed, only one receives full salvation. Let's close our eyes for a moment, and I want you to do nothing now, nothing to be distracted. I'm going to ask you just to sit quietly before the Lord right now and to remember all His benefits. Think about your life before Christ. How different you are now. Think about the change in your thinking, your desires, your passions, your priorities and your goals. about the confidence of your faith. The strength of knowing that the Holy Spirit is within you. Convicting and encouraging and guiding and leading. Oh, thank Him for that. Thank Him that He wants to do that in our lives. Think about the times when God's brought you through trial. Maybe you're in it right now. He's sufficient. He hasn't left you. Think about the times of great joy where you knew it was Him. Ah, oh, it could only be Him. The Lord did all that. He gets all the credit. He deserves all our praise, all our worship nothing held back. Just as we sit here, I want to do something that initially you're going to be uncomfortable with. And yet if the Lord has spoken to you this morning, you'll know this is what we have to do. We just need to openly express our gratitude to Him for His mercy and His love and His forgiveness and His spiritual healing of our lives. So we're just going to have a little mini prayer meeting. Listen, let me say, you don't have to be polite here, okay? You don't have to wait your turn. The Lord can easily hear every prayer and every praise. It's okay if six or seven people are all speaking at once. Don't worry about that. Don't let others hinder you from declaring your praise. This is family. This is family time now. It's no time to be shy. The Samaritan leopard yelled out. He praised God. So in just a second, I'm going to ask us to praise God. Not just with a word or two. But to openly praise Him and thank Him and honor Him. 
And for the next minute or two, we're just going to praise the Lord. And then we'll sing and we'll praise Him some more. And then we'll leave, and as we're going, we'll praise Him some more to each other. He's worthy of that, isn't He? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, all that's within me. Bless His holy name. Let's just praise Him now. Let's just speak openly about Him and praise Him for who He is. evidence after evidence, day after day of your faithfulness and your goodness and your mercy and your patience you're slow to anger and rich in love Lord I thank you for that sentence today you don't give us what we deserve you give us what we don't deserve poured out abundantly Lord, I pray for anybody this morning that their heart is not soft and they're struggling to give praise because of what's going on in their life and they're struggling to trust you. Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would speak to them and to each of us because you know that we all struggle with ingratitude. Lord, may it never be said of us, may it never be said of this church, neither were they thankful. May our lives and our words and our thoughts please you and constantly bring praise to you. We thank you, Lord, this morning for who you are. And Lord, we declare to you that we love you. We love you. Lord, we can pray this only because of your son, Jesus, who intervened and died and rose again so we could be redeemed. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.